0: Welcome to the Mad in America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry
1: and social justice.
0: Hello, this is James and welcome to episode 50 of the Mad in America podcast. In this episode, we turn our attention to World Mental Health Day held on October 10th, 2018, and in particular concerns about the globalization of mainstream westernized mental health treatment approaches. And to discuss this, Madden America's news editor, Justin Carter, interviews Dr. Melissa Raven.
1: On October 10th, 2018, World Mental Health Day, the Lancet Commission on Global Mental Health and Sustainable Development published a report outlining a proposal to scale up mental health care globally. At the same time, the UK government is hosting a global mental health ministerial summit with the intention of laying out a course of action to implement these mental health policies globally. In response, a coalition of mental health activists and service users have organized an open letter detailing their concerns with the summit and the report. The response has attracted the support of critical professionals, psychologists, psychiatrists, and researchers. Our guest for this MIA podcast is one such researcher and activist, Dr. Melissa Raven, a psychiatric epidemiologist and policy analyst, is a postdoctoral research fellow in the Critical and Ethical Mental Health Research Group at the University of Adelaide in South Australia. Originally qualified as a clinical psychologist, she then worked as a lecturer and researcher in public health and primary health care. Her current mental health research and advocacy is informed by a strong social determinants perspective and a strong critical orientation. But she applies to a range of topics, including suicide prevention, workplace mental health, overdiagnosis, inappropriate prescribing, and conflicts of interest in mental health and the broader health welfare arena. Welcome to the Madden America podcast, Melissa.
0: Thank you, Justin.
1: To get us started, can you provide our listeners with some background on the global mental health movement and where this new Lancet report came from?
0: Okay, well, the global mental health movement has been happening slowly um, for a number of years, uh, more than 10 years, Um, although it's gained momentum in recent years. I think basically uh, one of the most important starting points was the Global Burden of Disease Study that was done in the 1990s, Um, and that surprised everybody by identifying depression as a major contributor to the burden of disease um, particularly morbidity rather than mortality in the world Um, and that really focused the spotlight on depression and and that kind of started a, a focus on mental health as an important component of global health.
1: So how did you in your role as a researcher first become interested in the global mental health movement?
0: When I was doing my PhD, which was a a critical appraisal of depression and antidepressants, um, I was very aware of the global burden of disease findings about depression, and I was very critical of those findings. Um, There were real methodological problems with the way depression was modelled in the global burden of disease study. Um, For example, it attributed all suicide to depression, totally ignoring other factors. And unfortunately, that tends to be fairly pervasive in the mental health field generally, Um, like ignoring physical physical illnesses that contribute to suicide, ignoring, ignoring social determinants of suicide, In the Global Burden of Disease, everything, all suicides were attributed to depression. The case that was used was excessively severe. It was based on clinical opinions, And again, that that is an issue that's really problematic. The generalisation from clinical evidence to the population and the assumption that cases in the population that are not undergoing treatment are effectively the same as clinical cases, as people who present the treatment, only they haven't yet presented the treatment. So the severity and comorbidity um, and the distress and the potential um, adverse consequences of depression and other mental disorders that show up in clinical cases are assumed to be the case in the population and that is why there is so much emphasis on narrowing the treatment gap and getting more people scaling up treatment and getting more people into treatment. So, as I said, I was doing my PhD and it was a critical analysis of of depression and antidepressants and I was very much aware of how epidemiology such as the global burden of disease was really driving overdiagnosis as an epidemiologist, I am very aware that a lot of the epidemiology that is used in the mental health arena is seriously misused, for example, by generalising from clinical evidence to the population. So I've been watching the global mental health movement for a number of years now and and been very concerned about it. and. It worries me that it is, there, there seems to be a real concerted global push with a lot of philanthropic and political backing to really, really push the treatment agenda, which I think is going to be very, very problematic.
1: Great. Thank you. The case is being made to scale up mental health care globally and to do it quickly by proponents of the global mental health movement. Supporters often point to pretty alarming statistics, like the ones you mentioned about depression, about the prevalence and incidence of mental disorders. You've looked into these numbers in the past. Can you talk about where these statistics come from, how accurate they may be, and how they're being used?
0: A lot of the statistics come from the, um, the World Mental Health Survey, which is a massive survey that's been undertaken in a number of countries over a number of years. And that has produced quite a lot of publications, many of which contain these alarming statistics about the prevalence of mental disorders and the treatment gap, the fact that most people don't get treated. Now, to me, as an epidemiologist, there are multiple issues around the World Mental Health Survey. Um, One fairly obvious one is the validity of using um, diagnostic criteria that have been developed in Western settings and using them in other countries, in particularly lower and middle income Mm. countries. Um, All of those issues around the cultural appropriateness of diagnostic criteria, but also the issue of the appropriateness of using diagnostic criteria in a population setting and whether it is valid to conclude that people who meet diagnostic criteria actually have a disorder that needs treating. Um, Another thing about the World Mental Health Survey um, is that it has documented over and over again the treatment gap, the fact that most people are not being treated but as far as I'm aware, it hasn't reported anything about the outcomes for people who do get treated. There is, it talks at times about so-called minimally adequate treatment, which is not actually the same as effective treatment, although some people probably think that is. And it's, the survey results in terms of whether or not people who are treated are better off than people who are not treated as far as I'm aware, simply have not been published. And yet, despite that, there is this very strong push that the treatment gap has to be narrowed. Now, if if it's appropriate to scale up treatment dramatically, as is being advocated, that should be on the basis of evidence. Generally, the evidence that gets cited is from very short-term clinical trials Mm-hmm. Um, which, of course, as we know, are very often biased by funding. So basically, the, the logic of the the push to increase treatment is that an antidepressant trial funded by a drug company 10 years ago showed that in 6 or 12 weeks, people who had antidepressants did a little bit better than people who were on placebo. And that sort of evidence is used to to claim. Well, we have effective treatments. All we have to do is scale them up globally. Uh, one of the things that the world mental health surveys have shown, which is actually very useful, is that stigma is not a particularly significant barrier to treatment seeking. Um, there were other barriers identified that were that were more important. However, despite that, there is this simplistic assumption that one of the most important things that needs to be done is destigmatisation. We need to teach people that it's okay to to have have a mental disorder. So uh, the, the Lancet Commission report the first use that it, identifies the digital technology is to educate the public and disseminate information about common mental disorders through anti-stigma campaigns. So there's a huge emphasis on anti-stigma, which is actually ignoring the evidence of the World Mental Health Survey.
1: Thank you. So, coming back to this new Lancet report, I know it's just been released and researchers are still poring over the report. Do you have any initial reactions? Where has this report maybe improved from past reports and where are your concerns?
0: Okay. Um I will begin by saying that I am pleased to see that there are multiple mentions of the social determinants of mental health which in a lot of publications don't even get mentioned. However, I think that the emphasis on treatment as the solution just eclipses the social determinant perspectives. I think that people are likely to pay lip service to it. Social determinants sometimes get instead of being seen as a population level issue, it sometimes gets turned into things like, oh, well, people with mental illness need better housing, and they, they need vocational support, whereas the social determinants of mental health are things like poverty, housing insecurity, food insecurity, discrimination, unemployment, and so on. Um, and those are issues which are much, much harder to address much much more challenging for governments to address so unfortunately i think both in terms of the global mental health movement and in terms of domestic politics within different countries governments tend to see mental health as a kind of quick fix for social problems rather than addressing social problems it's much easier for government to increase funding for mental health services and ignore the social determinants of mental health problems.
1: Thanks. I noticed that the report from the Lancet Commission includes a section on the use of digital technologies for mental health, uh, which makes a case for using apps to both screen and treat mental distress. I know that in the past you've done research uh, on the types of messages about mental health that are conveyed in these apps, Can you tell us a little bit about the study you've done, what you found, and what this might mean in the context of the report?
0: Yes. Um, We did a study that focused specifically on mobile mental health apps, and we did a qualitative content analysis of readily available apps in the United States, the United Kingdom, Canada, and Australia. We found that those apps, very much tended to medicalize and decontextualize and individualise mental health problems. Um, they really located problems within the individual person and located the responsibility within the individual. They had quite strong messages about, you know, it's, it's up to you to make yourself feel better. They also encouraged kind of hypervigilance of, of your mood state. Um, which in itself can be fairly counterproductive. There, we also identified real privacy and confidentiality issues that none of the well that there is very little regulation that adequately addresses. So to my mind, in a global mental health context, mental health apps. I think of course they they do have a place. I think that mental health apps can help people, they can help access to counselling and so on. Um, however, I think they're likely to create problems um, in terms of the well issues of privacy and confidentiality, for example, but they just reinforce the, um, the idea that mental health problems are located within the person. Nothing to do with the social determinants. I have noticed that the report promotes a number of ways in which digital technology can be used. And the first one is education of the public and disseminating information about common mental disorders through anti-stigma campaigns. So it's just basically another way of delivering the same old messages about you need to recognise that you have a mental health problem and you need to seek treatment and you need to not worry about stigma. Also, screening and diagnosis, there is an utterly uncritical promotion of the value of screening. I think I think probably the, the third and the fourth uses that have been identified in the report Um, The third one is technology can support the treatment and care of people with mental disorders. I would say, yes, it can, but it doesn't mean that it will necessarily do that appropriately. Similarly, digital technology can support effective training and supervision of non-specialist health workers. Yes, it can do that, but if all it does is teach non-specialist health workers how to screen and diagnose people and tell them that they've got mental disorders, that worries me. So the, the digital technology in and of itself, I think, definitely has a place. Um, I'd just much rather see digital technologies being put to use to help people address the social determinants of health health, rather than these Western concepts of, of mental health.
1: It seems that one of the assumptions underlying this movement for global mental health is that greater access to the mental health treatments used in Western countries will decrease the rates of mental distress in other nations and improve the economic productivity of their citizenry. However, there seems to be some evidence that this is may not be the case. For example, in the past, I know you've investigated the relationship between antidepressant use in the population and the incidence of depression in the population. Can you talk a little bit about that research and what you found?
0: Basically, there's very little evidence that increasing mental health treatment in Western countries has improved population mental health. And this is the case both when you look at antidepressants prescribing And when you look at, um, more generally, mental health treatment, including counselling, for example, Anthony Jorm here in Australia has documented the fact that massive increases in mental health treatment under the Better Access Scheme funded by the Commonwealth Government and also massive increases in the provision of headspace services to young people have not... Been accompanied by reductions in distress in the population, nor have they been accompanied by reductions in the suicide rate. So it shows that in West, and similar studies have been done elsewhere. I know Joanna Moncreve has looked at things like this in the UK. So basically, greatly increasing treatment in Western countries has not been successful in improving population mental health. So why would we expect the rollout of Western style treatment to lower and middle income countries to somehow improve population health in those countries when it hasn't even worked in our own country?
1: Many critics have pointed to the role of the pharmaceutical industry in the global mental health movement and the perverse interest that these companies may have in opening up new markets of consumers for their products. Indeed, many pharma companies have played a role in starting and promoting this global mental health movement. Can you connect your work on pharma's marketing practices to what we might see in the global mental health movement?
0: Yes, indeed. Um, Pharmaceutical industries have definitely played a major role in the development of the global mental health movement. Um, And one, particular example that I think is really important is the campaign that Eli Lilly ran in Thailand in the 1990s. Um, they commissioned Burson Marcella um, to run the, the campaign for them um, and it was all about um, increasing awareness of depression, increasing awareness of the danger of the illness, and they they basically used a lot of the the standard marketing techniques that are used in Western countries, but they adapted them in conjunction with some organisations in Thailand, they adapted them to kind of culturally fit in Thailand, so that was that was one example that has actually been documented in the literature as a a good example of a marketing campaign, and there are other examples. For example, Wyeth has funded awareness campaigns in China. Blackstone smith Klein has funded various promotional activities in Japan.
1: Right, it's sort of like you're, what you were saying about how. Uh... Like even the digital technology, the idea is to teach people about these disorders, right? So it's being framed as public health education rather than marketing.
0: Yeah. The Eli Lilly campaign, which was run by Burst and Marstella, was actually written up in a book called International and Inter- Intercultural Public Relations. So it was basically written up in the, the kind of the business literature. Not the health literature as a really good example of how to run a successful campaign, so you know it's all about um, the analysis of it was probably done by a i don 't know if she was a business study student or what, but you know it was all about how how what an excellent public relations campaign this is not a not an excellent public health initiative
1: another concern with the global mental health movement is that the movement will divert resources away from other efforts to address poverty, housing, war, educational reforms. Can you say more about this issue?
0: Absolutely. This is, this is one of my main concerns. Um, it really worries me in terms of both what happens on the ground and how problems are conceptualised. So, for example, it really worries me that governments in lower income countries are being encouraged to spend money on mental health treatments that potentially could be used for i think much more important things such as housing employment schemes mosquito net essential drugs such as you know malaria treatments and treatments for other physical diseases so yeah, it could, the, the resource implications of the global mental health movement concern me, but also the, political, the social and political implications concern me. The fact that governments are being encouraged to define social problems as mental health problems. Now, this is a very big issue in Western countries. Basically, there is an incredibly good fit between neoliberal politics and mental health propaganda because mental health propaganda locates problems within individuals and there can be a real compassionate take on it that people who are distressed need treatment and care and support and sympathy and they shouldn't be stigmatized but the problems are actually within the individual very much within their brains the solutions are individual and very often pharmacological. That makes it very easy for governments to ignore the fact that insecure employment, unaffordable housing, food insecurity are major contributors to mental problems, but the solutions are not treatment. The solutions are actually addressing the root causes, the social determinants of mental health. Um, for example, things like zero-hour contracts are absolutely pernicious to mental health. Poverty um, is just, you know, one of, one of the most important determinants contributors to bad mental health. And there have been a number of natural experiments, both positive and negative, that have, have demonstrated this. For example, the, the financial crisis the global financial crisis has, it has been documented that the global financial crisis has led to increased suicide rates. Um, This has been particularly well documented in Greece. So negative economic events can increase diagnosable mental health problems and can increase suicide rates, but that doesn't mean that the solutions are mental health treatment. Um, In terms of positive natural experiments, there have been a number of studies that have documented the fact that when, when communities have had beneficial economic changes, for example, Jane Costello and her team have documented the fact that when a casino has been opened on a Native American reservation, providing employment and income to the local population, that that has had positive effects on the mental health of children. So basically, it's not about mental health treatment. It's about the fact that more parents are employed. It's easier for parents to put food on the table and to provide what their children and families need. And people have hope because people can see that more possibility of employment. Basically, communities function better when they're not so impoverished. So that's a a good example of how a positive change in the economic circumstances of a community can have a, a detectable effect on mental health. Unfortunately, the evidence from such natural experiments, both positive and negative, tends to get ignored, it's much easier for everybody to focus on technological fixes, such as providing treatment and also providing anti-stigma campaigns and so on. And I'd also want to add to that, that that one of the things about social determinants of mental health is that they are also social determinants of a whole lot of other things, for example, crime. So, for example, when people are not living in such adverse socioeconomic circumstances, when when people are not as impoverished, it's not just that the mental health is likely to improve, but also crime rates will go down. Basically, communities will function much better and people will be a lot more healthy. The trouble is that, it often takes years for those sorts of factors. It's not so easy to gather the evidence about that. It's much easier to run a short-term trial, a clinical trial, very short, and, and pretend that that's going to be relevant to the long-term situation.
1: All right, well, thank you for joining us today and thank you for all your insights so far. Uh, a question to sort of leave us on is, where do we go from here? Uh, There is widespread suffering and distress on a global scale and the global mental health movement is one way of trying to address some of this distress. Can you talk a little bit about about what the alternatives to this movement might be and how we might uh, provide care and uh, improve the quality of people's lives globally in, uh, in different ways?
0: There is incontrovertible evidence that there are very high levels of distress globally. However, the global mental health movement is prematurely jumping to the conclusion that the most useful way of interpreting that distress is applying a mental health lens and then increasing treatment, um, ignoring the fact that the causes of most of the distress are not located within individuals. Mm. The causes of distress are poverty, Racism, war, climate change, a whole host of problems which are going to increasingly increase the problems that people experience in terms of both their physical health and their mental health. And it's very problematic when problems like that are framed through a mental health lens because it really forecloses the potential solutions and it also attracts resources away from alternatives. In the global mental health movement, there is a strong emphasis on mental health as a factor in economic development. I would argue very strongly that that needs to be flipped over so that it is recognised that economic development is a very important determinant of mental health and physical health. Rather than focusing on mental health as a decontextualised issue that can be fixed with Western solutions, the focus needs to be on directly addressing the social determinants of health and ensuring that people in every country of the world have access to the food and the shelter and the employment and the social inclusion and the education and the economic opportunities that they need that will profoundly affect their physical health and their mental health and the stability of countries and communities
1: well, thank you so much for your time okay. and I uh, look forward to being in touch.
0: Okay, no worries. Thanks a lot. So I wanted to thank both Justin and Melissa for that interview and to say that the open letter written by a coalition of service users, activists and critical professionals can be found by visiting MaddenAmerica.com or Maddenasia.org. So thank you for listening and until next time, take care. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views and updates.